Well, good morning, friends. Uh, my name is Mark, and we are reading this morning from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. If you're following the Church Bibles, it's page 969. So, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. And you'll recall from last week that where we left off, Jesus said, Rejoice and be glad. Uh, in the face of persecution, uh, for our reward in heaven is great. Uh, And Jesus continues here in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfil them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear... Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. <laughs> Golly, it's, it must be October, is it? Good to be together. Folks, can you keep your Bibles open in Matthew chapter 5, uh, where Mark read so eloquently? Thanks, Mark. And uh, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to get straight down to business. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you for these words from Jesus. They're so familiar. And so we ask this morning that familiarity wouldn't breed contempt and you would give us ears to hear them fresh and also hearts that are willing to change in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, when one of... uh, Good day to you guys online as well. I should have said that. My apologies. Uh, When one of our sons was um, born, the church where I was working at the time did the usual generous thing that churches do, they organise a meal roster. When Christians don't know what else to do, how else to help, we cook, right? That's what we do when we're out of ideas, we just start chopping and frying and baking. Uh, It's what we do. And so we were the very grateful recipients of a bunch of meals from kind people who wanted to relieve us from the chore of cooking when everything else was a bit chaotic. Now, I think on reflection, my nostrils had been kind of napalmed from changing newborn nappies, but I do remember sitting at the dining table, uh, eating one of these meals and thinking, what is this? Like, it it looks like food, but it tastes like nothing. It's got substance, but literally no taste. What what flavour is this, honey? I think it's water flavour. And uh, that night, I rifled through our spice rack, which had 24 different little jars, 19 of which had never been used and been out of date for about seven years, and I struck gold 
I found the elixir of flavour, a little jar of hope in a sea of bland. It was Master Foods Chili Flakes. Now listen, I don't want to overstate it. I wouldn't say it ushered in, you know, a new age or the kingdom coming, but it rescued from bland because it just had flavour, had this distinct taste. And so if you come over to my house to this very day, you will find a little jar of master food chili flakes hiding somewhere near the dining room table. Now today Jesus says that his disciples are salt of the earth. But what does he mean by that? Does he, is he just saying we add a bit of gospel flavour to the world? That we kind of redeem the world with the aroma of Christ? He also describes his disciples as the light of the world and a city on a hill or a town on a hill. What, what, what contribution does that make to our understanding of ourselves? And how are we meant to live as salt and light in the world? And what impact will that have in the world? And what connection does any of this have to the Old Testament law and prophets? Because Jesus seems to think there's a connection there. So these are the sorts of questions that we're going to need to work out together today as we unpack the second part of our Kingdom Calling series from Jesus' magnificent Sermon on the Mount. Last week we looked at the Beatitudes, you remember? Blessed are the poor in spirit, uh, blessed are those who mourn, etc., etc. And we saw that Jesus' disciples were really upside-down people living in an upside-down kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And that kind of upside-down idea is sort of reflected even in the artwork attached to this series, if you can see that. But what it really means is that disciples of Jesus are different. We've got a different idea about what it means to be blessed, We've got a different way of living in his world. And we're going to continue exploring that idea today as we work out what salt and light and law and prophets and penstrokes and surpassing righteousness have to do with life in the kingdom of heaven. And so let's go first to salt and light, those um, rather evocative word pictures that Jesus uses in the first little chunk, verses 13 to 16. But actually, if you go back to verse 1, first verse of the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see that Matthew draws the distinction between the crowds who were there, many, and the disciples, the few, who Jesus was teaching. Okay, that's an important distinction. For you, he says to his disciples there in verse 13, are the salt of the earth. Familiar words. What does he mean by them? Because if you describe somebody um, as salt of the earth in our culture, we, we're talking about an unpretentious person, right? Down to earth, honest, good-natured, big-hearted, looks after people, might have some rough edges, enjoys a joke and probably a beer as well. I mean, for those kinds of people, dressing up means putting on a shirt, right? Is that what Jesus means? You're the salt of the earth. Well, no, in his, in his culture, salt had um, multiple functions, didn't it? It uh, was a preservative that stopped meat rotting, and it still has that role today. It was something you could use to sabotage your neighbor's crops. You know, you spread it out over their fields. Very handy sort of stuff. What does Jesus mean by saying his disciples are the salt of the earth? I think the key is in the next part of, verse, part of verse 13, so let's read that together. You are the salt of the earth, he says, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. See, I think it's very tempting for us to, to think Jesus is drawing out one of those particular usages of salt as if to say, Salt keeps things from rotting. So you Christians be Christians and it'll stop the decay of society 
or salt gives things flavour. So you Christians be Christians and you'll add a bit of spice to society. But I think what Jesus is really saying is reinforcing what he's already said in the Beatitudes we looked at last week. Be distinctive. Be different. Be blessed in an upside down kind of way. Be poor in spirit, not sure in spirit. Mourn at the sin in your life and in, in our culture rather than celebrate it. Be humble rather than a humble bragger, etc., etc. Because if you are distinctive, you will have an impact in our world. That impact might draw persecution, as we saw last week, but it might draw out other things as well. But here's the thing if you're not distinctive, you'll have zero impact. I wouldn't go so far as to say it means you're good for nothing, but salt that loses its saltiness is good for nothing, says Jesus. It's a strong idea he's working with. And as he moves to verse 14, I think you get a better feel for how Jesus is developing this idea. You are the light of the world. A city or a town on a hill cannot be hidden. Do you remember last week when we started the Sermon on the Mount uh, with the Beatitudes, we said they're kingdom behaviours, right? They're ethics that belong to disciples, insiders of the kingdom of heaven. But look carefully at verses 13 and 14. Jesus doesn't say you are salt of the kingdom. He doesn't say you are light of the kingdom. You're a city in the kingdom, does he? Listen carefully. Salt of the earth, light of the world, city on a hill. I think he's saying they're not just kingdom ethics that we are to practice in splendid isolation in our ivory towers. He's saying those beatitudes, they're they're kingdom ethics to be taught and to be practiced in the midst of a sinful world, right? We don't do them for show, but man, they will get noticed. If you ever have been on a trip to Canberra, especially in, the, um, in days gone by or down to the snow or home from Canberra or the snow, especially after darkness had fallen, you might remember that along that lonely, inky highway would emerge, perched atop a very tall pole, the illuminated yellow M of Goulburn Maccas. Now, it's not quite the same now. They've cut the bypass through, but... But, but if you've done that trip in years gone by, you would remember this. Back in the day, you would round a corner from miles away, and there it would be, this comforting sight, this sign of civilization, <laughs> as if the thought of like a 14-year-old frying ground horse meat on an unclean grill was some high point of our culture, rather than, you know, ballet or the opera or Shakespeare, but there it was. And if you'd ever made that journey, you would know that welcome sight, right? You could see it from miles away in either direction. You are the light of the world, says Jesus. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And in the darkness of night, and I reckon Jesus' audience would be way more familiar with this than we are, who have like unlimited wattage at our fingertips, He says, Christians, you're the light of the world. You're a city on a hill. You're a neon arch in the night sky. That's what the kingdom of Israel was meant to be. But now it is Jesus' disciples in the kingdom of heaven who are the light of the world. And where the darkness of the world is sin, we represent something distinctive, provided we are distinctive with gospel living. 
where the darkness of the world is spiritual ignorance or ignorance of God and truly spiritual things, we signal something distinctive, provided we are distinctive with gospel knowledge. And we do this in view of our neighbours rather than privately, just as you would put a light on a stand rather than under a bowl where it would benefit no one and would eventually snuff out. Here's what I reckon will happen if we as disciples of Jesus, members of the kingdom of heaven at Jesus' gracious invitation, live out those beatitudes, that, those upside-down ethics of spiritual poverty, of humility and meekness and mercy and forgiveness and moral purity in a world that's heading in the opposite direction. I know we don't do it for the attention of others, but it will draw the attention of others. It will draw the persecution of others like we saw last week, but it might also draw out the praise of God. Let's read verse 16 together. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Kingdom disciples who live out their distinctive kingdom calling will attract persecution, sure, but we might also direct praises towards God. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? Jesus references good deeds there in verse 16, so it's, it's more about our walk than our talk, but it's got to involve our talk at some point because people must know that we do what we do because we're disciples of Jesus, because we love God. Otherwise, people might just praise us. So folks will need to know that we're Christians, the original salt of the earth kinds of people. Otherwise, they'll think we're just big-hearted, good-natured, honest, and unpretentious Aussies. And when we think about good deeds, we normally think about that in terms of um, personal morality, don't we? You know, not cheating, not lying, working diligently while being kind with our work colleagues, not gossiping, all that sort of stuff. I mean, I think it can include, uh, in addition to that, serving in pastoral care, couldn't it? Teaching English to people for whom it's not their first language. Um, cooking at a soup kitchen. Uh, it involves our involvement in community or social initiatives. You know, so many of us sit on the boards of charities and schools and I want to say, well done. You ought to be praised for that. For you are letting your light shine before people. And of course, some will have a crack at us. And yet others might see us and see our good deeds, I guess, and praise our Father in heaven. Seems to be the way Jesus thinks it's going to work. A lot has been made about the whole Andrew Thorburn Essendon thing. Um, and it really has, it's shocked us, hasn't it? Taken us by surprise. I think less has been made of the, um, the church association which triggered it all in the first place. But the church in question in Melbourne is called City on a Hill. They take the name for their church from these verses. And then they're not a controversial church at all. They're um, completely orthodox in terms of belief, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving church. They're good people. They're cool people, actually fine folks sensitive to culture, they're sharp in their communication, they're imaginative in their aesthetic. Basically, they do everything that we try to do, but only better, in a much tougher environment than ours. And I wonder if along with the hostility that they have experienced, whether some people have listened to City on a Hill, they have sensed 
their active concern for the people of Melbourne as well as their courage under fire and in one way or another have glorified God. I would be very surprised if that hadn't happened somewhere for they have let their light shine in Melbourne. Salt of the earth, light of the world, city on a hill. Friends, today's passage is a bit of a bridge. Um, the salt and light stuff in verses 13 to 16 really looks back to the Beatitudes before it. The old and new stuff in verses 17 to 20 looks ahead to Jesus' specific teaching about a whole area, a whole bunch of issues that follow. And if you've read the Sermon on the Mount recently, you will, um, you'll recall that six times by the end of chapter 5, Jesus says something like this. You have heard that it was said... But now I tell you. And it's tempting to think Jesus is sort of, I don't know, like wiping away the whole Old Testament commands and introducing a new ethical framework. In fact, he's at pains to say that's the last thing he's doing. The new really is the old. Let's read verse 17 together. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. You see what he's saying? The new really is the old. And it's sad to me that as Christians, not necessarily us in this room of course, I never do this, um, but as a whole Christians pay relatively little attention to the first three quarters of our Bibles that is the Old Testament. I mean we pick it up and we read it, I think like this, no, nah, don't know that page. Nah. Uh, nah, not that one either. Uh, hang on. Well, that's a bit more than I thought. Oh, far out. I'll uh, just look up John 3 on my iPhone. Don't worry, it's just a thesaurus I nicked from the office, okay? <laughs> Getting stressed. It is sad to me, though, that um, we regard the first three quarters of our Bibles with such little attention. Because firstly, the Old Testament is the only Bible Jesus had. You know that, right? And secondly, Jesus says it's all about him. He came to fulfill the Old Testament, or the law and the prophets, as he calls it here, rather than abolish it. See, this is, this is what, we, as Christians, we tend to think. The Old Testament is all about law. The New Testament is all about grace, and boy, we love grace. Uh, in the Old Testament, the God there is angry and judgmental, but in the New Testament, Jesus is kind and loving. The Old Testament is all about external observances. The New Testament is all about the heart. We prefer that. What fools we are. Of course, grace abounds in the Old Testament, doesn't it? And law and instruction abounds in the New Testament. What do you think the Sermon on the Mount is if it's not instruction? Isn't it in the Old Testament that we learn that God is a God of mercy who is slow to anger and abounding in love? Is it not in Deuteronomy that we hear the instruction to love the Lord your God with all of your what? Your heart? And if you think the New Testament doesn't have much judgment, have you not read Jesus? In the book of Revelation, Jesus doesn't stand in contrast to the God of the Old Testament. He is the God of the Old Testament. 
His teaching is not in contrast with Old Testament teaching. It's in continuity with Old Testament teaching. It's continuity, not contrast. It's fulfillment rather than annulment. Not the least pen stroke, right? Not even those little funny squiggles that distinguish letters and sounds in ancient scripts will be wiped away. He will fulfill it all. It is fulfilled in Jesus. And I would encourage you to think broadly about how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Of course, obviously and simply, he fulfills the the prophetic expectations about a coming Messiah by being that coming Messiah, the long-awaited king. And he fulfills the Old Testament sacrificial system by being the once-for-all perfect sacrifice for sin when he died on the cross in our place so we no longer have to sacrifice animals in the temple. What a relief. He fulfills the ethical and moral commands of our Old Testament by being the only one who ever lived up to its requirements perfectly. He was a true Adam who lived in obedience to God where where that first Adam failed to do so. Do you remember when Jesus wandered in the wilderness and was offered food by Satan? You remember that story, right? It's meant to heighten our expectations. Would this man be a true human who walked with God in the midst of temptation? Or would he give in like Adam did? And so Jesus' obedience fulfills the expectations attached to that first human. So he is the true human, the one made in the image of God. Or in that very same incident, you remember Jesus wanders in the desert for 40 days. It's highly reminiscent of the Old Testament people of Israel wandering in the desert for 40 years, right? It heightens our anticipation. It raises in our imagination the question, would Jesus be a true Israelite who walked with God? Or would he grumble and turn away from God like the first generation of Israel did? And so his obedience to God in the desert fulfills the expectations that attached to Israel originally. Jesus is the true Israelite. When we read of the failings of the kings of Israel, it makes us yearn for the coming of a perfect king. When we read of the waywardness of the people of God in the Old Testament, it makes us yearn for somebody who would turn their hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, and so on and so on and so on. At least it ought to, but it's only going to if we read and learn and know our Old Testaments, because it's all about him. And so, friends, whenever you read a passage of the Old Testament, and really I'm saying let's get into it, or the Law and the Prophets, as he calls it here, in addition to asking the question, what sort of literature is this? Like, is it, is it describing something that happened? Is it a command for us? It's a very important question to ask any piece of Scripture. In addition to working out what it meant for the original hearers, which you have to do before you can work out what it means for us, you also want to ask a third question. How does this passage prepare me for the coming of Jesus my Lord? What prophecy does it predict? What yearning does it evoke within me? What pattern does it set up? What expectation does it create that he and only he fulfills? The Old Testament is not only about Jesus, but in some way it's all about him. 
I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, he says, but to fulfill them, which he does in many wonderful and wise ways. And not only does Jesus fulfill in himself the law and the prophets, his teaching also fulfills the law and the prophets rather than cancelling it all out. And his teaching continues to apply to us. And in fact, in verses 19 and 20 there, those last two verses, he makes some further outrageous claims. He says, you, you, in fact, he probably would have said use, because he was talking to hillbillies in the north of Israel, use can be great in the kingdom of heaven. This upside-down kingdom full of upside-down people, you can be great by practicing Jesus' commands and teaching others to do the same. The same. By the way, you, you can't pick and choose which ones. You notice that? He says they all count, even the small ones. But nevertheless, you can be great in the kingdom of heaven by taking his commands and putting them into practice. Well, that is something to give ourselves to, isn't it? Mm. Friends, if you are not aware of it, it is HSC time at the moment. There are 77,000 year 12 kids giving their final exams at crack. One of them's in my household. And in about six weeks' time, I guess the results will come out. And then the league tables will be published. You know, what school will outdo every other school in the state? I already know the answer to that question. It is James Roos Agricultural High School in Carlingford. Now, I only know this because they come top of the state every single year, James Roos. Have a look at that motto. Gesta non verba. Do you know what it means? Deeds, not words. I think they borrowed that from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, there'll be other selective high schools um, like Sydney Boys High or North Sydney Girls High that will come close, but they will never topple James Roos because they've just got the smartest kids. They've got the best systems. They've got the most competitive environment. Now, I want you to imagine that I said to a bunch of wax-head surfy kids from the northern beaches, who look like this. <laughs> yeah, it's a ridiculous haircut, isn't it? <laughs> uh, if I said to a kid like that right before um, the English paper, I'm like, uh, you've got to beat James Roos or you're going to die. Very simple. You've got to outdo James Roos or you're going to be gone. Task is not hard to understand. Now, can, can you imagine even saying that? Because that is kind of what Jesus sounds like as he finishes this section in verse 20. Let's read it together. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> How could these hillbilly disciples on the side of a mountain in Galilee in the north of Israel, Hicksville, possibly compete with the Pharisees and teachers of the law in the arena of pursuing righteousness. I mean, those guys were the pros, right? Smartest guys, best systems, most competitive environment. How can country disciples possibly match that? Well, I guess by not matching the Pharisees at their own game, by surpassing them by attending to the heart, which was always the interest of Old Testament commands, not just the externals, by obeying in their spirits to the glory of God, 
rather than an obsession with outward appearances to the glory of man. And friends, that's where Jesus is about to go next in the area of relationships and sex and marriage and truthfulness and revenge. This surpassing righteousness, which is fitting for kingdom disciples, will drive us well beyond the rigid external righteousness of the Pharisees because it will engage our hearts and then it'll drive us right back to the first beatitude, poverty of spirit. For we will realise our complete inability to do that in ourselves and we will fall in utter dependence on the forgiveness of Jesus and the empowering presence of God's grace in our lives. That's what it will take to practice Jesus' commands and pursue Jesus' righteousness. It's the task before us as his disciples that can only be done in his strength. And so Jesus circles back to the very beginning of the Sermon of the Mount and says, effectively, blessed are the poor in spirit. And so, friends, as we finish this morning, we, we turn our attention to hamburgers and good stuff like that. We see that Jesus is both beautiful and brilliant. And his kingdom is upside down, and yet it's quite wonderful. Why wouldn't you want to be a part of it? But being a part of it, let your kingdom light shine before others that they might see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Let's pray to him now.